Today's Wednesday. It is uh, 7-15-2020, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll begin. Father, thank you for this hour we have together this evening. We pray for wisdom, we pray for clarity, and as we approach with humility your word. We thank you for this day, and we pray for each person who is on the call and will be a part of the call. And we pray for Word is Truth Christian Church. And we extend that to the universal church, which is believers all over the world. All of this we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, so our normal course of study, as you know, is in the book of Romans. And we're in Romans 8, and we're at a pivotal verse, which is 17. Lots to discuss in that chapter. And we will attempt to take another bite off of it today. So we'll get to... Now, if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. We'll talk about that today, uh, but before we do, we'll just make sure we uh, open up with a little bit of a Q&A, which we normally do at this time. So the floor is open. I'll pause for a moment to see if there are any questions out there. I kind of came up with a question while I was looking at some of the uh, future chapters of Romans, and I got into Romans 15, and in the ESV there's a headline over verses 8 through 13 called Christ the Hope of Jews and Gentiles, and um, so it looks like there is some quoting of the Old Testament in, involved here. Um, so like in verse 9, it says, As it is written, therefore I will praise you among, among the Gentiles and sing to your name. 10, it says, um, And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And 11, And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And in Isaiah, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him with a Gentile hope. So mm -hmm. um, th these verses, um, I'm, not, I'm not didn't have a chance to look at the context yet. Um, but obviously, they're, they're talking about um, talking about the example of Christ, for example, in, in verses one through seven. Mm -hmm. um, and Paul is explaining that he himself is the minister to the Gentiles. So what is the purpose of him referring back to the Old Testament? Um, because he's obviously not talking about the mystery if he's doing that. Yeah, a lot of... And, and welcome. I see Dave has joined. And hey, hey, Dave. So, okay. What we have is Paul's use of the Old Testament. And you will find throughout 
Paul's writings, he does quote from the Old Testament quite a bit. And every time he does, he is referring to some truth that's found there. So as it relates to, in this case, Jews and Gentiles. Notice he is remembering who Jesus is as he is the uh, he's the one who is the Messiah or the servant of the Jews right when it, you know in his role as servant Christ comes to pay for the sins of the world he serves the Jews in that way and he's predicted to have done all that and when you look at all of these scriptures they're absolutely true about uh, the Gentiles about Christ and what he was going to do here uh, praise the Lord all you Gentiles that all the peoples extol him and he's just giving an example of what it is in Christ right right we, we should praise we should have that praise and he's using these Old Testament passages to show what the example for us should be now, it's not to say that we're Gentiles, but we can use the theater of the Old Testament to talk about praise to the Lord as well. So if we look at, um, in fact, you could look at a lot of his uses of uh, Old Testament theology, especially, you know, the one that comes to mind is Romans 9, where he talks about, um, especially at the end of 9, he does the same thing, right? So... So at the end of 9, he talks about, uh, there's a lot of scriptures that he quotes. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites be like the sand of the sea. Uh, or as he says in Hosea, verse 25, uh, just like he, or verse 29 again, just like he says in Isaiah previously. So what you, what you find is just pictures of how he intends to use those verses uh, as it relates to us. Now, it doesn't mean that we are Israel or the Jews are in play now. He understands that. But what he's saying is he can use those verses to reflect what we are in Christ. That's what I think he's doing here. Now, I haven't really uh, taken a look at all the context of it, but that's what I can see. It sounds like the same thing he was doing. Yeah. So welcome, Dad. Well, he's on mute, I guess. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, I don't know if my phone is muted or not. No, you're good. I can hear you. Yeah, I can hear you now. You want me to uh, mute my phone? Yeah, I just wanted to say hello. That's all. You could go ahead and mute unless you have a question. Uh, I just want to listen right now, so I'll uh, mute. If I have a question, I'll unmute. All right. All right. Hi, everybody. Hi. Glad how to have you. Doing? Glad to hey, have you. Hey, Pop. Hey, Pop. Hey, Pop. How you doing? You staying safe? You staying safe down there? Trying to. <laughs> hey, Dad, your internet is up. We're resuming, and um, so yeah, we were we were just looking at some scriptures in fifteen. Dwight, your thoughts? Uh, 
Yeah, just uh, to continue with, with going back to 15, so I can see in Romans 9, he's quoting from the Old Testament specifically because the topic that he is addressing is God's sovereignty. And he's clearly showing from the Old Testament that, you know, this has proven out. Um, we know he is, he is also pulled from the Old Testament in Romans 3 to indicate the, uh, you know, how bad the bad news is. Um, so in Romans 15, what is it that he is expressing? Why is, why is he pulling in the Old Testament? Um, which, is, as I said, is clearly not about the mystery if he's making a distinction about the Gentiles praising God with his people. I would say to take a look at 15.4 through 7. Why don't you read okay. it? In the ESV, it says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. So then he goes into those scriptures from there. Right. Yeah. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarch, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he, then he starts quoting um, several passages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he so I'm what I'm guessing he's saying what I'm, what I'm getting he's saying is that you know the, the welcoming of the Gentiles um, you know is the, the hope of Christ is for both and so the Jews should be just as welcoming of the Gentiles as was even predicted in in the Old Testament. Yeah, I mean it's more about encouragement in these in these verses, right? And okay. extolling yeah. and praising. God for his plan and then he goes into how we could look at the Old Testament and see the glory of God through what he was doing with those peoples there whether it was Jews or Gentiles and uh, and if you look after that he says I myself have convinced my brothers and sisters that you yourselves are full of goodness this is verse 14 filled with the knowledge and competent and to instruct one another yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me so when you put all that together you could see that he is really just magnifying God that's what he's doing and he's using the scriptures and just keep in mind the New Testament scriptures hadn't been written uh, at the time he, he he's using what he has in front of him in order to uh, teach, which is the Old Testament. And we probably, uh, you know, being able to sit under Paul, who is uh, a student of the Old Testament, we, we would benefit greatly, I think, by listening to how he interprets it as someone who now understands in Christ. Imagine 
understanding Paul's views when he was a Jew and a Pharisee and all that, you would not be able to hear him speak about the Bible in these glowing terms. But now, from this standpoint, he sees a different way to look at the scriptures. And it's like the scriptures opened up to him. When you read in Acts, Paul went from synagogue to synagogue. Now, what do you think he was going from synagogue to synagogue talking about? He saw the Old Testament with the benefit of the enlightenment of the Spirit. So he was able to now bring truth to those synagogues and help them to see that Jesus is the Christ. And uh, so, and he, he had much success. Uh, but then he, uh, the leadership were not impressed. And that's how Paul ended up getting in trouble and thrown into jail and appealing to Caesar and all that. You know the story. But he was very persuasive in presenting Christ. Now here, this is not even about presenting Christ. This is about praising God. And I think the verse in 5 encapsulates it. 5 and, and 6 May, God, may the God who gives endurance, endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think he, he, he's sort of, uh, it's like a doxology in his mind to some degree. All right. Other thoughts? The um, I, I just I was reading the commentary on the Believer's Bible, and uh, do you mind if I re re uh, read what it said? Sure, go right ahead. Okay, it says the first thirteen verses of chapter fifteen continue the subject of the previous chapter, dealing with matters of moral indifference. Tensions had arisen between the converts of Judaism and those from paganism. Paul here pleads from a harmonious relations, for harmonious relations between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, you mean from the Jewish and Gentile Christians, from their heritage? You're saying that's what their believers' Bible is talking about. So, in fact, I have that right here in front of me. Yeah, I'm just looking at it. Mm -hmm. Those who are strong, that is with... And even though, even though we're one in Christ, the issue was that Jews did not want to associate with Gentiles. You know the issue. So, when we, when we look at that issue, and this is where we studied Ephesians 4, we found that uh, the problem, I think, was that Jews and Gentiles had infighting going on in the church. So there was a lot, when we talk about the filling of the Spirit and you know all the things that come as a result of that, I think that's where uh, the context helped us understand 
what the Holy Spirit brings so as to bring harmony and unity in the body of Christ. And even with people of different backgrounds, whether they be Jew or Gentile. So, yeah, this is, this is good information. Yeah, I guess the uh, early church and, you know, Peter uh, ran into problems himself as a Jew, uh, dealing with Gentiles, uh, well, we should say Gentile Christians. And uh, we know that uh, they thought of Gentile Christians, I mean, as dogs. They didn't even regard them. I mean, these were dirt under the bottom of their feet. So why don't, why don't you read in the Believer's Bible where it says verse 4, 15, 4. Read that, Fred. The quotation from Psalms reminds us that the Old Testament scriptures were written for our learning. While they are not, well, excuse me, while they were not written directly to us, they contain invaluable lessons for us. We, as we encounter problems, conflicts, tribulations, and troubles, the scriptures teach us to be steadfast, and and they, and they impact comfort. Thus, instead of sinking under the waves, we are sustained by hope that the Lord will see us through. So this says exactly uh, the way you interpret it. It tells you exactly why they're written. Yeah. And I, I don't need. I don't know. If it needs to say more. Yeah. yeah. Other thoughts out there, or if not, we were going to get into the Romans. We're going to move forward. All right. Sounds good. Romans eight. It is then. All right. So we are, as I said, at Romans eight. Let's pick up where we left off. Uh, we're in Romans 8, and if you head on to down to verse 17, uh, well, let's read a couple verses in before, and then we'll pick up at 17. Uh, verse 15, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so, as you, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now of course, we didn't really have a lot of time to develop this. But we did last time, if you recall, talk about inheritance. So we, we identified that Israel, and I you know, took some time and read a bunch of scriptures, I, I hope you do recall. We took some time to identify that Israel has a stated inheritance in scripture, and it is relative to land. It is a land grant to Israel, which is the 13 tribes, <clears throat> or really 12, really 13, but we talk about them in terms of the 12 tribes. And with Israel, each 
each per each tribe has been given land. And it's interesting that the Levites did not have uh, an in, an inheritance of themselves, but their inheritance came from the people, which is referenced by how the how the other tribes had to pay tithes to the Levites. They didn't have land, and we're talking about an agricultural uh, society here. So land is an important thing. It is super important. I mean, land means wealth. If you have land, then you have wealth. That is the thought. I guess if you looked at it in this country before the Industrial Revolution, you it was just that way as well. And in the South, there was lots of land, and they farmed that land. And that was the wealth of how the South uh, looked at uh, wealth. They always see, saw it as land. And at, at one point when they were going to talk, they were talking about freeing the slaves and giving them uh, land. Remember, it was 40 acres and a mule. And that is to say, wealth. They were going to give some wealth back, which uh, they, they felt. But all of that is to say, we're trying to identify what was Israel's inheritance. It was, a, it was about granting wealth to them. Now, I said the land, but I don't want you to think it's just land. I want you to see the Bible in terms that the Bible is written. Right, and the time in which it was written, it was about wealth. And they were to have tremendous wealth, Israel, permanent, forever. This is a grant that God had given them. And we know the future of Israel is such that they will continue, even, uh, even though it looks like they're not a nation now, and that they don't possess the land that was granted to them. They will possess that land. Now, uh, they are dispersed, but they will possess that land in the future and uh, in the new earth as well. So, that that is a lasting wealth that is given to those people. That's not just that, but it is more than that. Remember, the headquarters for... Uh, for God would be Israel. That's it's not just to say that Israel was granted land. The king is literally going to live within uh, Israel. That is the it is the hub or the center of the earth, you might say. So there is that one scripture when you read in Hebrews. Uh, I'll just read it. Hebrews eight. This is about the new covenant. I'm just slipping over here real quick. He says, um, verse 8, God found fault with the people and said, "This is the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Now this part is the key phrase that I wanted to turn here. I will be their God and they will be my people. So that part is common to every reference of the new covenant. Really, this is a quotation from Jeremiah. So, uh, and then it goes on, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. You know why that is so? Because he'll live with them. He will be the center of Israel. And that one verse, they will, I will be their God and they will be my people. That is a common phrase. It shows that God, the God of Israel will be in-house. And verse 12, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling the covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So we know that Israel as a nation has not received the new covenant yet. And if we flick back over to Romans, uh, I hear pages turning. Romans 11, we see this verse. And it says here in verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And obviously come into what? Not, we're not coming into Israel. We're coming into the church. And in this way, Israel will be saved. In other words, not until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. Right? That's the hardening that's going on and Israel uh, has to wait until this is over. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will turn. he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Now when it says that, this is what we were reading in the New Covenant in Hebrews, right? He says, I will forgive their sins, I'll take away their sins, right? Well, that's uh, what is going to happen. It's, it has to do with forgiveness, so even though Israel's sins are paid by Christ, the, the person, the, the sacrifice has already been made, they're not reconciled yet. So when they're reconciled, that represents forgiveness of sins. So, so how does that look? Uh, and this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. So as far as verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. He's talking about currently speaking. Israel and the church don't get along. In fact, you should know it is Israel who instigated uh, getting Christ on the cross in the first place. The Jews, remember? But as far as the election is concerned, meaning God has chosen Israel as a nation. They are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So we should know that Israel has a definite future with God. I will be their God, they shall be my people. And there shall be no one running around saying, know the Lord. Why? Because I, he'll be there. 
They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Back to Romans 8. We're in verse 17. So what I thought, we, we illustrate Israel's inheritance, and much has been written about Israel's inheritance. But not much has been written about the church's inheritance. Even though we outlined what it is and, and how, uh, you know, the fact that we, are, we have an inheritance that is different from Israel, it hasn't been detailed for us exactly what it is. Now, I say that. I'm saying it here. Even though we have talked about it, but we need to define it. And here's why. I want to just go to Ephesians chapter 1. And if you are flipping Bible pages, hopefully you're right there in Ephesians 1. Head on down to verse 17. So I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. So here is this verse, verse 18, says <laughs> that you may know. And if you look at the Greek of this, it's not just the hope, it is what is the hope to which he has called you. That you may know what is the hope. So when I, I was, as I read that, and I really dug into it, and uh, I said, we need to know what is the hope of our calling. And obviously he, he says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in God's in, in the holy people, right? That's one part. And, and then he also says, in verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is, and then he goes into this analogy of what that power is like. That power is the same as the mighty strength. I like what the NIV has done here. Because <laughs> when you look in the King James Version, right, and look at verse 19, it says, and what is, exceed, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us were, who believe according to the, to the working of his mighty power? And it says, what is the exceeding? But NIV kind of gives it clearer English for us. And his incomparably great, great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength. Let me just see something here. I'm going back to King James for a minute. Uh, yeah. According to the working of his mighty power, right? That's all they said, according to the working of his mighty power. NIV puts it in more personal terms so that you know and are ready for the analogy. So and then he goes into that mighty strength that he's talking about in verses 20. He exerted... When he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every type, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So that's a lot. 
That's not just power. That's position. So when you're over all of those things, then you are not just raised higher than all powers, far above all powers. So we're, we're going to talk we're, we're going to talk about that. But before we do talk about that, we need to talk about the riches and, and the wealth that is in verse 18 that has to do with the subject that we're on, inheritance. So you should know when it says heirs in Romans, then I don't have to say heirs equals inheritance. Hopefully you know that if you're an heir, that means you stand in the position of inheritance. You may not have the inheritance yet, but you stand to inherit something. That's why you are said to be an heir. Now, once you inherit that which you uh, are said to have, are you still called an heir? Or are you now just in the position of what you have inherited? You, you are not an heir anymore. We're an heir right now because we don't have the fullness of what he promised us. But it's coming. It's definitely coming. And, and that's what we have to look forward to. What is it? Because that's where we want to go, right? We don't have a whole lot of time. We're just going to jump on it. So verse 18, remember, uh, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is important that you know this. In order that you may know what is the hope. It should be what is the hope to which he is called. And I want you to know that as well. So I want to see that. First, in terms of what this scripture says, and we'll turn to a few other scriptures to try to identify what is the hope to which he is called to. First, he describes it as the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, first of all, we, we, we don't want to uh, try to think of this in terms of riches, in terms of earthly wealth. Earthly wealth does not satisfy uh, what God has done in Christ. And if, if the wealth, it resides in Christ, which we know in Colossians and other passages, it says that this is in Christ, then we know it, it is not something that is earthly or that translates into earthly wealth. And I would hope that you don't see it as, well, I'm going to get rich. Unfortunately, I have to say that because there are many people who have diverted the thinking of this whole thing of inheritance as we have a right to command things to the extent that we can create the desired life for us down here on earth. If we need healing, well, then we can command that we be healed. If we need money, wealth, we command that God, you know, that, that wealth come to us and wealth will be a part of who we are. All that is not what we're talking about. So we know that in this world, we're going to have trouble. We, what we have is the deposit. We have the first fruits. We don't have the fullness of what God has given us. And most of what we have at this point in time isn't the power and authority, right? Because I can look at all of you and realize that you are not in that position on this earth. The world doesn't see you in the glowing terms that Ephesians 1.18 does. 
for some reason, you don't have it yet. <laughs> I could say for some reason. You know what reason that is. Because the rapture hasn't happened and we haven't received the adoption to sonship. In other words, the resurrection of our bodies. We are not in the position fully to inherit all things. So let's look at inheritance. It is in Christ the wealth. And we're going to determine a little bit about what is in Christ. What is exactly is this wealth? But just know already from Ephesians 1.18, it's related to riches. It says the riches of his glorious inheritance. So we're going to break it down. The riches, these are not, this is not earthly wealth. So if it were, it wouldn't have to do with, as I said, being in Christ. But it is something of great value. So riches uh, are used as an analogy here, or metaphor, to illustrate something of great value. We have uh, hoisted up riches and wealth in this world as king. The, what, if you have riches in this world, then you fare far better than the poor. So it is something to be admired. In fact, uh, many people have searched for riches, have spent their whole life pining for riches. And, and God has some instruction about what it says about money. He says, the love of money is the root of all evil. And then he even says later, many find themselves falling in all kinds of different traps and things because of their search and quest for getting rich. So it is certainly a motivation in this world that is, uh, you know, part of greed and and, and the, the avarice that has to do with uh, trying to gain and build wealth. There's so many stories that Jesus talked about, the rich man and, and the poor man, and what shall it profit if, if a man gains the whole world and when it says gains the whole world, he's talking about in terms of wealth and yet loses his soul. He's just not going to profit him anything. We have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Well, it describes the rich man as having all of the provisions of every benefit of money and wealth that he could have. And the poor man is described as someone who is a beggar, who has nothing in terms of earthly wealth. He just survives on the scraps that fall from the table of the rich man. And it's, I don't know why it says this, but it just shows you the utter depravity of this man where it says he has sores and dogs lick his sores. This is uh, utter depravity and, and base, poor, uh, a poor, somebody who's so poor they live in, in squalor. And so then they both die. And uh, what happens after that? The, the roles are reversed. The rich man is in torments. And the poor man is in Abraham's bosom, comforted. And, uh, you know, you, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but I just wanted to show a little bit about what the Bible thinks about rich and poor. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, right? We, we will never 
get to a place in this world where there will be no poor people. In fact, I'm thinking poor people will increase as the world goes on, especially the way things are going. The gap between rich and poor is widening and the middle class is disappearing. So in this case, riches of his glorious inheritance. When it says glorious inheritance, it's, it has to do with God's achievement. Right? God has done something so, so great that he considers it glorious. It is, a, it is a, a great achievement what God has done in terms of these riches. And what is the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people? That or the saints, the hagias, the, the, the holy ones. What, what is his riches? Now, we're going to talk about that. In a couple scriptures, I want to turn to, uh, since you're already in Ephesians, go to 3, Ephesians 3, and just another passage uh, relating to that. So Paul says in verse 8, although I am less, hopefully everyone's there, Ephesians 3, 8, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me. To preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ or unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, it, what, what, here's another way to say it. Paul is saying not only should we know what is the hope of your calling and what is the riches of his glorious inheritance, we should know those things. It shouldn't just be something that is buried deep and and we you know who have explored the deeper things are privy to these should be preached right this is not something that should be hidden anymore we need to preach it let people know that this is what the church has in fact israel had the land and we're, we we fully understand how it works and what we just talked about that we should now fully explore what the church, what is the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, in the church. So, this is Paul's attitude toward it. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace, when he says this grace, he's talking about the abundant mystery that has been, uh, the revelation that has uh, just flooding his soul. And if you are not sure about that, you just read the previous verses in context it was given me here it is to preach to the gentiles the boundless riches of christ and this this is what was driving the apostle paul imagine if we have such a glorious inheritance uh, that is riches glorious riches here it is described as boundless riches of Christ unsearchable not able to get to the bottom of riches of Christ uh, Wiest has some pretty good things to say about this if you happen to have his commentary so he says this about it let me see if I can get to it he says um, yeah this is verse 8 so he says um, the apostle speaks of himself less than the least um, glory realizes let me see where we get to that 
the Gentiles is Peter. Here it is. Unsearchable riches of Christ. He says uh, two attractive words. Riches and unsearchable. Conveying the idea of the things that are most precious. Being infinitely abundant. Usually precious things are rare. Their very rarity increases their price. But here, that which is most precious is also boundless. Riches of compassion, of love, of merit, of sanctifying, comfort, transforming power. And without limit, and capable of satisfying every want, craving, yearning of the heart, now and evermore. When a person trusts the Lord uh, Jesus, he immediately becomes a spiritual billionaire in Christ. He possesses inexhaustible treasures. Now, as I read that before, I thought, does that tell me what the riches are? Or it just tells me that they're boundless. I know the passage doesn't get into, and the riches are this, right? So, I just want to go to the next verse. So it helps us understand what the riches are. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. So the administration of this mystery, right? Now we know what we're that what he's dealing with. He's dealing with not only is the mystery the boundless riches of Christ, but how this mystery is administered, right? That means how God is ruling over his household with regard to this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So here we have to stop for a minute. And we have to rely on our some of our previous understanding of what we are, what we've been called to, and what we become as a result of it. And much of this lays heavily on the shoulders of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When we were identified with the person of Christ, that is to say that everything that is true of Christ has become true of us. Even as you go back to Romans and we're talking about uh, by virtue, let's, well, we'll go back to Romans at this point. Romans chapter 8. I know I'm switching all over the place. Verse 17. So as we go back to Romans, what we had I've identified is the spirit we receive, right? And doesn't make us a slave to fear. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So what, what he's referring to is the work of the spirit in, in putting us in union with the person of Christ. So when he did, when he did that, so we, by virtue of the fact are married we're married to Christ so we because of our union have everything that he has now, there's a couple ways to look at that we could say well what is what is the the lord jesus christ have there are two parts to the lord jesus christ that we know of he's one person but he has uh, divinity and he has humanity, true humanity, an undiminished deity in one person forever, I think it is said. And this 
union that we have with that person means that we now share all of those things in common. Now that's, that's a tough statement to make. And I wouldn't even say that all the commentators would agree with that statement. It is mind-blowing to think that, that you are identified with a person and because of your identification or your union with that person, you inherit all things. But I used to use this analogy a lot, but I'm going to try to use it again. And where did I get it from? I got it from the Bible. In Ephesians 5, it talks about Christ and the church. And Christ is said to be married to the church. And he even goes through the scriptures. A man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. And that one flesh is a reference not to a husband and wife literally now becoming one flesh. It is a spiritual relationship that Christ now has with the church. So every analogy, it may not give us everything we need to know about it, but it gives us some aspect that we can glean and learn more. So that aspect says, and there's a, I got to turn, I'm sorry, I got to turn to Ephesians 5 real quick. Ephesians 5, here it is. This is the aspect we need to make sure we know. It's sort of like an aside here. So it says, Ephesians 5, um, well, let's just start at 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now get this one. He who loves his wife loves himself. And verse 29, And after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. Verse 30, For we are members of the body. So there's a lot of information about the intimacy of our relationship with the person of Christ. So we are said to, that intimacy is so close that we are literally him. That's exactly what it says. He who loves his wife, his body, loves himself. Because that's a part of who he is. So that's the analogy we're given that we are so united to the person of Christ that we now have everything he has. Now think about this. I don't care what a person, a woman is, if she, if she marries a man that has tremendous wealth, unless they have a prenuptial, <laughs> she has, by marrying that person, inherited, all, not inherited, but by virtue of their union, she now possesses and shares all things that that person has. Now that, that is what we know today in terms of a person could be from poor 
In fact, a lot of people use marriage to try to get well. They, they want to marry rich. They want to marry money. Right? They don't even think about the person. They're thinking about the money that the person has. So in our relationship with Christ, I just, let's put it out there. The fact is, we have exactly what he has. He is human nature. He has divine nature. We share in both sides of that. And we're going to talk about everything he has and what we possess at, by virtue of the fact that we now are in union with this person. But I just want to, before we, even though riches and all that are unsearchable, all that is there. Really, the emphasis is not about the riches. It's more about the person. So the riches are related to the persons. And the persons themselves are what is valuable, not what they possess. Now, that's another way to look at this. Because if we look at it like, wow, look at what we get from being in Christ. Man, I don't forget about Christ. Let's talk about what we get. That's what it would sound like. But what we want to focus on is not what we get. We want to learn about it. We want to know what is the inheritance, but we want to understand what the real value of the inheritance is. It is being connected and united to a person. That's how we got what we have. Back to Romans. Because if you think about it in Romans 8, right? so, so the reason why we're in this position is not because we did something or we achieved something. We were called to this. This is not something I could have invented or come up with. Just like it says in Ephesians 1, 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. and love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons to his glory. We didn't choose this. He chose this for us. And the reason why we're here today is because of his choices. You are one of his choices. So everything that accrues to us as a result of our union is, uh, is grace. It's his sovereign choice. So when I look at verse 17, and we're talking about all that is involved, it talks about it from the standpoint of our inheritance. We are now heirs. And this part here says... If it, if it were only that we were heirs on the human side of Christ, that would be one thing. But notice what it says. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. This last phrase here, heirs of God, is for clarity. He could have just said we are heirs, but he said we are heirs of God. He didn't say heirs of the humanity of Christ. Heirs of God. So, there's a sister scripture in Galatians 4 I'm, I might turn to. I know I know the time is getting away from us here. Sister scripture in Galatians 4. Let's look at this. Galatians 4 says toward here. It gives the example here. 
where is it? Galatians 4. Oh, is it 3? Did I? Hang on. It might be 3. Pretty sure it's 4, though. Oh, no, okay. Yeah, so that's, if you belong to, okay, so it's in the beginning of four, okay. So it says, verse four, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts and the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So, so this, these verses are literally saying the same thing we have in Romans 8, 7, 16, and 17. But in this one, it doesn't talk about the fact that we are heirs of that we are joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him. It doesn't talk about that in Galatians. What does it talk about? The most important thing here, that you're a son. And what does that son, uh, sonship bring you? It brings you that you become, uh, that you have, you're an heir. And Christ is an heir. So when we say, that we're heirs, I'm going back to Romans now. So when it says that we're heirs, it doesn't mean that we ourselves have somehow adopted or got or positioned ourselves. We're heirs by virtue of the fact that we're children. So the Spirit, Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children. And since we're children, if we're children, then we're, so we didn't get in the position of children because of something we did. We are chosen into this. And by virtue of that relationship, we stand to receive this inheritance. I know it, it sounds unbelievable. And I'm, I feel like I'm at an impasse here because of the time. And we, we don't have the time to fully finish developing where I wanted to go with this. So, this is what we're going to do. Next week, we're just going to go straight to this. And this way we'll have enough time to finish the thought. And then we'll take a little time after to do some Q&A. So, what we can just continue to walk away with this week is that we are children, meaning you know, sons, and then we are heirs, and we have this inheritance, and we're heirs of God. And when we say heirs, that what do we stand to inherit? Everything God has given Christ. So, in essence, you could say, you didn't inherit these things. Christ inherited them. He's the one who is the heir. But since you are, stand to receive everything Christ has, he says you're an heir of God. He didn't say you are an heir by virtue of your relationship to Christ. That's how you, beca you became an heir. But even though that's how you became an heir through adoption, you are just as fully an heir as Christ himself is. That is, 
So when we talk about son, we're not just talking about like, oh, I have a son or you have a son. We're talking about a role. And so many scriptures, and we may go over them next time, it talks about our inheritance where Christ says, all things that the Father has are mine. All things are yours. What, and we're going to talk about what that means in relationship to us, our sonship. And it's like it's just like it says it in uh, 1 Corinthians 3 at the end. All things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, things to come. Or if you go to Colossians, where he says all things were created by Christ, right? Here it is, 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So through him and for him. He's the right, he's a creator and the rightful ruler. But this was a part that he played in the creation of all things. So when we are united to this person, I just want to read the last verse and we're going to have to close. It's Ephesians 1. We didn't get to the heart of, heart of it yet. Ephesians 1, verse uh, 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him. I'm sorry, it's, we got to back up. It's verse 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ mystery of his will to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ so that is the role that Christ will have he doesn't fully possess all of that now because we know there's turmoil on the earth we know there's things going on but eventually that is where this leads and, and Christ is going to be reaching that fullness and bringing to unity all of that, whether think in heaven, on earth, the whole thing. Well, guess who else is part of that? We are. We're dropped right into the middle of that by virtue of the fact that we share everything the person of Christ has. We're going to deal with it next week in more detail. So I know we're out of time, so we're going to have to quit bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to fellowship and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray for wisdom as we approach what is the glorious riches of this inheritance in the saints. We'll, we pray that you will bring us back next week and we can discuss this in greater detail. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.